The following program is sponsored by Evangelical Life Ministries. Welcome to Engaging Truth, the manifestation of God's Word in the lives of people around us. Join us each week as we explore the impact of His message of spiritual renewal, from the lesson of forgiveness forged in the crucible of divorce, to the message of salvation learned by an executioner from a condemned killer, to the gift of freedom found in the rescue of victims of human trafficking. This is God's Truth in Action. Welcome to Engaging Truth. I'm your host, Pastor Douglas Kringle, and this morning we are greatly blessed to have Reverend Dr. Dale Meyer joining us. Dr. Meyer is the former speaker for the Lutheran Hour, the former president of Concordia Seminary St. Louis, and before all of that, a former milkman. Welcome to Engaging Truth, Dr. Meyer. Thank you, Doug. It's obvious that I was not able to hold down a job for very long. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for the sake of some of our younger listeners, uh, maybe explain what exactly is a milkman, and then are there any observations from that work experience that might help leaders today? Well, a milkman back in the 50s, 60s, delivered milk to houses. This was before you had the the great big supermarkets, which could sell a gallon of milk below cost. So I worked my way through school for eight summers uh, delivering milk house to house. And then when the company trusted me a little bit, they put me on a big truck and I went to factories and grocery stores and so on. But it was good money. I, I made like $90 a week. And that that provided enough to pay for my college and seminary expenses. So, yeah, it's, it's just like a lot of other things. It's gone by the wayside. But but I learned a lot from it. I did. Well, it might be you were ahead of your time. Today we have Uber Eats and other people who deliver food to the door. It's just not specialized in milk. So maybe you were ahead of the curve. Leaders, well, If I might say yeah. I'm living in the past because I have my own milk truck, a 1973 Divco milk truck that I've had restored, and I'm kind of living in the past like guys my age do. Wow, that's really cool. That would be wonderful to see the milk truck show up at church someday. (laughs) You know who's preaching there that Sunday when the milk truck's at the front door. Well, leadership certainly is something that you've demonstrated again and again throughout your past callings, and still to this day, of course, in the Last couple of weeks, I just started teaching as a guest instructor at the seminar. I'm teaching Teaching the Faith to some specific ministry pastors, and it's a great honor to do it. Any counsel for the new guy? You'll be fine, Doug. Um, You know, just meet the people where they're at. Tell the students to meet people where they're at. A lot of times we pastors study theology, and we want to share what we've learned. No, find out where the people are at, what their questions are, and then bring your resources to bear. Good counsel. I will take that to mind. It is it is really a joy uh, to meet with them on Zoom. We've mentioned here already in our interview a little bit this term seminary. We've mentioned it a couple times. Is a seminary the same thing as a college? And when what role do seminaries play in the Christian church today? Seminary is not the same as a college. Um, Seminary students, at least at our two seminaries, are generally required to have a bachelor's degree. 
so it's it's post baccalaureate work um and and we study only theology i mean ivory tower theology but also how do you bring that down the street in the lives of people which is practical practical theology uh the seminary education has changed a lot over the years it's changing now uh because of economic pressures demographic changes technical abilities when i went to the seminary 50 some years ago we didn't have all of this it stuff uh and so we've had to adjust to that with multiple delivery modes of education yeah i mean you just testified to that with your you're having your class via zoom uh, i i think that in the case of our two missouri synod seminaries in fort wayne and st louis people need to realize a number of things there are 270 accredited seminaries in North America. Our two seminaries are, are big and well-respected among those 270. I think the average uh, enrollment for, for a seminary in North America is about 110, give, give or take. So our two seminaries are large. They're, they're well-respected in part because of their age. And the interesting thing is that we serve a denomination. Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod by providing pastors. We know our market, but we both have graduate programs that are open to any Christian who wants to come. And, and that to me is, is an important thing as we move forward. We don't compromise our Lutheran understanding of the scriptures, but we share it through our graduate programs. And that means that we can be Lutheran leaven in the Christian world. Most people think of the seminary as a factory to produce pastors. Okay, we, we do that. That's, that's probably job number one. But job number 1B is, is to provide our, our Lutheran insights um, throughout Christendom. We do that through the graduate school. We do that through uh, the, the, the writing and the presentations our, our professors make. So that, yeah. A seminary is more than a college. Deaconesses are going to graduate school and seminaries now. I remember years ago, I had the honor of being the editor of the little seminary newspaper, and we were learning about ladies, women uh, who were taking graduate school. And Horace Hummel's wife, I remember, had received a graduate degree, I think it was back in the 60s from Concordia Seminary. So uh, that might be something that needs to be better known is that there's plenty of opportunities for men and women at our seminaries, and thanks be to God for that. Now, your seminary education also included uh, a classics degree, I believe, at Washington University, which is right in the backyard, or we're in the backyard of them. I'm not sure how you put that. But... Uh, sure. They're a lot bigger than we are. They're, we're probably in their backyard. Yeah, that sounds like the right way to go. Uh, you've clarified also in an earlier conversation that uh, you're not retired, retired. Actually, you are pretty busy uh, writing a book, and that book's about a book, about the book of 1 Peter in the Bible. In many churches, 1 Peter is read intensively throughout Easter and the season after Easter celebrated. Uh, what do you believe is First Peter's role in the Christian church today? Well, it depends upon the day of the week how I how, how I'd answer that question. But but a lot of people have observed that 
First Peter can give us some insights for Christian life in the 21st century. The 20th century, in which we grew up, you know, was Christian America. I mean, people knew that they should go to church. They knew the main things about the Bible. They knew what the church taught about Jesus. Doesn't mean that they necessarily believed it, but but the population generally knew that. When I went from a little Lutheran grade school to a big Chicago area public high school, what the high school taught was complementary to what the church taught. So it was a a, a Christian, at least Judeo Christian culture. That's all gone, and it's not coming back. First Peter was written in a time when the culture never had been. Judeo-Christian. And so there's insights that we can learn for our time today from First Peter. And, and, and this also applies to other New Testament books as well. Well, one of the things that we have in common with the ancient world is suffering. And in the book of First Peter, I was really impressed when I reread it, how many times the word suffering is noted my study Bible notes that First Peter may have been written a year or two before Peter was martyred, in, in possibly in Rome. So here in Houston, we're familiar with suffering. We've had Hurricane Harvey, the big freeze. The whole world's had COVID. We're in the middle of a continuous heat wave here in Houston. Suffering is something that still translates. How does First Peter, or how does the Apostle Peter, approach suffering? Well, you didn't mention the Houston Astros cheating scandal. <laughs> now you're making me suffer. Uh, <laughs> and to which First Peter would say, go out and do good. Don't do wrong. Uh, it's, 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 it's a very good question. The, the suffering that Peter is talking about is first and foremost suffering for the Christian faith. Here in the United States, Christians are nominally still the biggest part of the population. They were minuscule, minuscule in Asia Minor, where the first Peter recipients um, were living and, and quote-unquote worshiping. And so the suffering was especially the suffering for being a Christian in a society that was not only pluralistic, but synergistic. And these, these Christians aroused suspicion from their neighbors and, and fellow townspeople because they wouldn't participate in some of the, the synergistic pagan festivals that were going on. And that sent a signal to the townspeople that these guys want to overthrow undercut our government so their loyalties to the roman government were, were very much in question now and so that's where peter offers them hope and some guidance does that apply to the problems we have today um societal problems uh, hurricane problems and so on well yeah it does but it's kind of like the ripple effect you put a stone drop a stone and it ripples out the big, the big hope is the coming of Christ in glory, which is imminent in First Peter. And that then changes our outlook as we suffer through other temporary worldly afflictions. So we keep our suffering in context, 
And that context is, on the one hand, Peter was an eyewitness to the suffering of Jesus Christ, as well as his resurrection, and as well as his ascension, and the promise of the return. And all this is how he took his suffering, was in the context of what he witnessed. Yes, that's right. And the, the pattern of Christ is the pattern of Christian people. Peter's very strong about that. What Jesus went through for us, suffering and then glory, is the same road that we're supposed to be going through, suffering now and the glory to come. Well, in addition to suffering, Peter also wrote about this word. doesn't seem to be used too much these days. The word is righteousness. Is this term something that affects us here 2,000 years later? Yeah, Uh, and it's interesting that we're in the fall of the year and many churches will observe the Reformation and the trumpets will be out for the righteousness of God that is revealed to us through faith in Jesus. That's Romans chapter 3. That is not the righteousness precisely that First Peter has in, in mind. Now, the two are not contradictory, but Paul and, and, and Peter are, are more complementary. If, if I can give a, an example or two, Peter talks in chapter 4 about the person who has suffered ceases to sin. Hmm. Well, if you're thinking Pauline, you know, we're born sinners, original sinners. What, what does that mean? Peter is not thinking in Paul's way, especially as Paul talks about it in Romans 7. Peter is thinking of actual sins, going out there and compromising your faith in this synergistic culture of, of, of pagan Rome. So his understanding of sin is different. It doesn't deny. Peter is not denying original sin. In fact, the reason why Peter talks about our new birth chapter 1, verse 3, and, and several other places, new birth, that's that's because we have original sin and needed the new birth that comes to us by the word and, and, and the water. So righteousness in First Peter, and the word comes up in chapter 3, righteousness means living as a redeemed, chosen person of God. The Pharisees and the scribes, talked a lot about righteousness in the first century, but with them it became almost self-righteousness. Peter's not there. Peter, Peter's not into that. So I think righteousness is something that, that we need to understand as, as church-going people, which I hope we are, that we need to live righteous lives in this society. Um, And that's not only because of what Jesus did for us, but because we're soon going to give an account for our own Christian life when Jesus appears in glory. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 is uh, embarrassing. It says, we will all appear uh, naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's a scary proposition, okay? So living righteous lives is not only because of what Jesus has done for us, but because we're going, he's going to come as as judge of the living and the dead. That's that's also in Peter, First Peter chapter four. So I hope that makes some sense. But yeah, righteous living is something I think that the, that we would do well to raise up more in the church. 
it's not just a matter of having faith and having your ticket punched to heaven. Um, God is still watching how we live. Well, Peter was a married man. Uh, Jesus healed his mother-in-law. Yeah, and, I wonder. I wonder how Peter felt about that. Forgive me, I shouldn't say that. No, that's that's, uh, <laughs> that's uh, interesting. Well, we'll leave you to exegete that uh, text. But that don't write to me about that one. <laughs> <laughs> but he does mention marriage in his letter, and uh, he does talk about this, of course, theologically, as this is in a revealed text. What does First Peter have to say to modern marriages when we're talking about righteousness in the sense that you just described? That, that's a good question. He has one verse about Christian wives, chapter 3, verse 1. And, and we have to understand the context. The, the, the father, the husband was the religious head of the house. He determined what the family was going to believe religiously. That's why in, in the book of Acts, you have talk about households being baptized. The father, for example, Cornelius in chapter 10, decided, hey, this, this Christian message is okay. We're going to go that way. What you have in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, is a wife who flaunted her husband's authority, and became a Christian. There was a, a, a strain in the, the very early church that said, hey, you're free, you can do whatever you want. Peter is saying, don't offend your husband. I mean, you've joined the church, that's good, but, but be cool, you know, show him by your behavior that you're not flaunting his authority and I'm speaking of the first century there, but show him by your behavior that the hope that is in you. Um, excuse me, I, I said one verse. There are six verses. I was, I was wrong. There are six verses about Christian wives. There's only one verse about husbands. That's three verse seven. And, and there he's talking to a Christian husband whose wife may or may not believe, she probably would believe because he had decided to believe. Um, and there he's saying, deal with her as a joint heir of the grace of life. So the context of first century Roman beliefs about, pra about marriage uh, is very much in play there. But it translates to our life today. I mean, whether a Christian husband and, or a Christian wife, we should show by our conduct, by our righteousness, uh, the hope that is in us. And as 3.15 says, always with gentleness and respect. Well, there's so much richness in the text. First Peter was a fisherman, and yet God moved him to some beautiful turns of phrases. And what I'd like to do, we have about five minutes, just to briefly and quickly go through a few of these and get your reaction. The first one is born again. Our evangelical, you, you just want a, a, a reaction, not a lecture. However you're moved, sir, we're glad to hear from you. The word, a, and the word and baptism. I was born again on January 26, 1947. Ransom. Doesn't communicate today. Somebody bailed my butt out. That communicates. Freedom. Freedom means submitting to the Lord Jesus 
and living his life. That is true freedom. Conscience. 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 I have, baptism is a pledge that I will live a righteous life enabled by the grace of God so that I can have a clear conscience before God now and on the day of my judgment. The devil prowls. The devil does more damage to the church by making us accept assumptions of Western culture that are not true than he does by leading us into body houses and 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 and, and all kinds of addictions. Um, the, the subtleties of the old wily foe are, are, are really hurting the church now. And one of the things I want to do in my commentary uh, is expose Western assumptions, cultural assumptions, that are just bogus when it comes to the Bible. Casting all your anxieties. Jesus is ascended. He's not on the cross. He's not in the manger. He's not standing outside the tomb. He is the ascended Lord Jesus, chapter 3, verse 22. So we, should, we need to start thinking of him as somebody who is active in our lives and the life of the church now, and not just regard him as an interesting thing in a religious museum from the first century. The Word of God is something that Peter celebrates, and he goes back into the Old Testament. And we have about four minutes left, but this quote from 1 Peter was very striking. The grass withers, the flowers falls, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Any comment on that phrase? Oh, yeah. yeah. We have all of two minutes left, so you'll have to come back and talk to us again about it. Be glad to. We could have we could have two days. If if you ask people to show show me the word of God, you know, Lutherans don't react very well, but but eventually somebody will hold up a Bible. There was no Bible in the first century. There was no New Testament in the first century. What Peter had, and the word that, that he's talking about there, if, quoting Isaiah, is, is what we say in Latin, the Viva Vox Evangelii, the living word of the Bible. You know, when, when, when people came, came to uh, Pentecost, the, the apostles did not hand them an evangelism brochure. They said the living word of God, the living word of Jesus. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's a whole deception that we need to unmask. It's a living word of God, not, not a book on a shelf. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I appreciate your time very much. Would you give us a brief prayer in conclusion to today's interview? Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for coming into our world, for dying on the cross, for rising again. Help us to understand, as First Peter would teach us, that you are now seated at the right hand of God. You are in control of all things for the good of your church and for us believers. Continue to send your Holy Spirit into us in our devotions, in our worship on Sunday, in our meditations, so that we might anticipate more and more the day when we will see you face to face. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Meyer, for joining us here on Engaging Truth. Thank you very much. And for you who are listening, thank you for joining us on Engaging Truth. 
This is Reverend Dr. Douglas Kringle saying goodbye and God bless. Thank you for listening to this broadcast of Engaging Truth. Be sure to join us each week at this time. To help support our ministry, contact Evangelical Life Ministries, Post Office Box 568, Cypress, Texas 77410, or visit our website at elmhouston.org, or find us on Facebook at Evangelical Life Ministries. Thank you.